You are listening to a teaching series from Jubilee Church entitled Ruth. This series uses the book of Ruth to explore how God wields hopeless, difficult, and mundane situations in life to bring about hope, love, and redemption. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Anyway, hey, if you're new here, my name is Brian Mowry. I'm the lead pastor here at Jubilee Church, and um, we are one church. We've got uh, four locations and five services, about 700 people uh, spread out, Washington, the lake, here in the city, in Kirkwood. And uh, we're also a part of a family, a church is called New Frontiers, touching about 60 nations. And I say that because uh, the church that you're a part of, Jubilee, is bigger than what's in this room, bigger what's in your room. It's also smaller than what's in this room. We have a thing called community groups that are just so crucial to how we do church. And if, if you're not in a community group, I just want to encourage you to do that. Uh, life is a team sport. You need people around you. In fact, we're in the book of Ruth where we're learning that community is a massive, massive deal. If you don't have community um, in your life, you're at a great disadvantage. It's kind of like not having Wi-Fi. I mean, it's just like, you, know, you can kind of get by, but not really. And so uh, get in a community group. We are in week five, as I said. And one of the things I just want to say from the get-go is that I don't know if you've noticed this yet about Ruth, but the two main heroes of this story are single. They're not married. God, God, there you go. There's, there's one here too. Uh, God uses people in the church who aren't married despite the fact that Christianity in large part has become associated with families and children and minivans and suburbs and soccer moms and juice boxes and just stuff like that. And it is all that and, it, and it's, that's good, but it's also very single. It's urban it's for people who drive hybrids. It's for people who drink craft beer. It's for people who stay up later than 930. It's, it's for those too. And so I, I just want to say that because if you're here, you're single, you're so welcomed uh, and you've got a part to play. And we as a church need to pay attention to our mission field. I don't know if you know this about our mission field. That is the United States of America. But in 1970, 36% of all adults were single. In 1990, 41% of all adults were single. In 2010, something happened in our country that hasn't happened in any generation, any time before, and that is the number of adult singles outnumbered the adult marrieds. I was talking to one of a pastor in St. Louis, and he said that there are roughly 360,000 singles in the St. Louis metro area between the age of 18 and 29, and roughly one and a half percent are engaged in church life. Just to give you some perspective, that's less, in fact, far less than the percentage of people engaged in local communities in communist uh, mainland China, where it's illegal to preach part of the New Testament. So I just, you know, I hear some cool things that people going to China and like smuggling Bibles and and keep doing that. But if you want to challenge, go on UMSL's campus go on Sluice campus, go to the Grove, go to the Central West Inn and try to tuck a Bible underneath one of their arms and then you have something. <laughs> it's a total unreached people group. That's why, you know, it was mentioned that mobilize is such a big deal for us. And one of the things that the scripture says in Isaiah is that when the enemy comes in like a flood, that God rises a standard amongst them. If you're 18 to 29, I want to encourage you to be a part of that standard. Yeah. Don't like sleep on this. Don't like, eh, you know, just... R- Understand what you, who you're part of. And if you're older than that, don't, don't say, oh, I know this church is young and all they care about is young. No, 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 that's not it. 
Uh, but we're, we're understanding wh- where we're at in our culture, in our time period. The, Ephesians says, be wise with the times, know that the days are evil, and know the will of the Lord. And we want to go after that with all of our might. So if you're single here, you're so welcomed. If you are married here, you are so welcomed. If you are young here, you are so welcomed. If you're old here, you are so welcomed. And everybody in between that, it's a, it's a big thing that God has us in. And uh, where we're at in Ruth is that we've learned... Uh, that this story starts as a very normal family led by this guy named Elimelech. And he's married to this woman named Naomi, very kind of normal average family. Naomi um, means um, pleasant. And uh, they, they, they had this marriage. And well, what happened in Bethlehem is that they had two sons um, and the famine started to hit Bethlehem. And so the, the economic climate got worse and worse and worse and worse. And Elimelech and Naomi made the tragic decision to leave their healthy, you know, the, the Bethlehem. They, they decided to leave God's people and they went to Moab. You know, there's no church there. There's no believers there. The, the spiritual climate, is, but their economic climate seemed better. So they, they chose to... Um, value their economic climate more than they did their spiritual climate. And it was a tragic, tragic mistake. And what they wanted to avoid happen, happening uh, happened, which is they became very destitute. In fact, Elimelech ends up dying. His two sons end up dying. And so Naomi, in a very bitter state, goes back to Bethlehem. And then her daughter-in-law comes running after her, this girl named Ruth, and says, please take me with you. And Naomi says, no, you belong in Moab. That's your people. And she says, no, uh, I want your God to be my God, and I want your people to be my people. She has this genuine conversion, conversion experience, and they together they go to Bethlehem. Now, Naomi's getting bitter, but uh, Ruth is getting better, and she has this great faith in God. And she says, perhaps uh, that as I go out and I glean in the fields, I'll explain that in a minute, God will show favor to us. Now, gleaning in the fields is like the equivalent of picking up aluminum cans and getting a few bucks for the day to feed her and Naomi. And so she goes out and guess what happens? Lo and behold, as luck would have it, she comes across the field of the rich guy, the successful guy who loves the Lord and just happens to be single. And lo and behold, just on that very day, You know, here comes Boaz in his Mercedes and he's checking on his business and he says, oh my gosh, I've never seen her before. Who is she? And she gets, they talk about her character. She, he loves her character, is very uh, um, moved by her character, shows her great favor. And, uh, but to this point, it's just kind of this, you know, brotherly sister thing. But then they go on this first date, which we didn't read about, um, is in, um, uh, chapter 2, verse 13. And I'll read that for you. It says, At mealtime, Boaz said to her, in a very, very white voice, Come here, my daughter. Eat some bread. And dip your morsel in the wine. What's the takeaway here? Gentlemen, take her out to dinner. And I mean like a real place to eat. What does that look like? It means, you know, the linens, not paper napkins. And your food isn't served by some high school kid wearing a uniform. And pay for it. And pay for it. Don't go Dutch. Go Christian. Don't. I don't know why. I don't know why the Dutchmen are so cheap. But don't be like Dutchmen. Be like Boaz. But what's interesting here is he's so generous and he takes her out. But they're not alone on this date. And the next verse says, so she sat by the reapers. She sat by the other men and women. He's got this very generous heart. He's not looking 
uh, to get something out of her. He just wants her to meet people. He wants her to have a good time. And the picture here is that you and your friends, you go out on a Friday night, everyone's going out. You, you invite her along. You know she's the new girl at church. You invite her along. You pay for it because you invited her. Why would I do that? Because you care for her. You're looking after her needs. And the fact that you would invite her along with her friends and pay for it just demonstrates that you're not really looking for anything out of this. You just want her to have a good time. And she has a good time because she ate, in verse 14, until she was satisfied. Until she was satisfied. And then it goes on to say, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her, don't rebuke her and also pull out from the, bu- from the bundles for her and leave it on the glean. So she says, hey, go do all the work and just leave stuff on the ground for her to pick up. Just leaving little rose petals. And so... She gleaned in the field until evening, and then when she got done, it says it is an, an ephah of barley. Now, I don't know if you know what that, that is, uh, but this is the equivalent of about 21 days' wages in one day. She made two or three grand in one day. And she's, this is the very beginning of barley season, and she said, you can have this gig for the rest of barley season every day, making two or three grand a day for six or seven weeks. This is an amazing hospitality. The picture here is that, you know, you know, Boaz owns this kind of restaurant, so to speak, and these, his employees goes and find this girl dumpster diving, brings her in, says, hey, you can wash dishes and make some money. He comes into the restaurant and says, who's this girl? Well, tells her who he is, and she's, okay, come here. You come to the, you come to the best table in the house. Not only that, you could, I'm going to give you a job. I'm going to give you, like, the cake. I'm going to give you all the big reservations, all the big money-making tables. You're going to have them. And he tells all those young men, don't get angry with her. Don't rebuke her. You leave her alone, you let her make this money. He is so kind to her. He's just a wonderful brother to her, treating her like a sister. And then the chapter ends, there's some more verses here, but the chapter ends with just Naomi and Ruth talking about their day because that's what women do. They talk about their day. Nothing here about Boaz talking with his guys about his day. You know, no action... Uh, excuse me, no dialogue, all action. He gets the info he needs. He makes a decision. He protects, he provides, and that's it. He goes back in his cave at Naomi and Ruth. You know, they do the play-by-play, and that's what that's all about. You can read about that if you want. Now, what's curious is what happens here is they have this amazing introduction. They go out on this first date, the very beginning of barley season. Six weeks goes by, and guess what happens? Nothing. He doesn't call. No second date. And so every day she comes home and Naomi's like, what did he say? Nothing. What did he do? Nothing. Did you see him? No. Did he say anything? No. What's going on? I don't know. He just seems to be removed. And some of you ladies are like, I knew Boaz was too good to be true. <laughs> he was just playing her. He's a player, typical male. Well, what do you think Ruth does? Well, there's a couple options in front of her. Number one is the Moabite way. What's the Moabite way? Well, she, here's a girl who turns her back on, on the gods of this world. The God, uh, uh, yeah, the gods of this world and, and the world's way. And says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that. I don't want to serve those gods anymore. I don't want to live that way anymore. I'm turning my back on that and I'm going to go and follow God. Whatever it takes, he's going to be good to me. He's going to be my provider. And he provides. And then she finds herself in the church and nobody's interested in a Moabite woman. It, all the good church boy, all the Hebrew men, they would not touch a finger. They wouldn't mess with a Moabite woman. 
She's damaged goods. She's not a virgin. She's a Moabite. She's served, you know, who, this would be a, this would be a, she'd be a social outcast. And the one guy, the single guy, the rich guy, the successful guy, we were this close. And now it's over. The Moabite way would be like, I'm going back to the only place that I can find him. This is going to happy hour. And say, hey, the first guy who, the first guy who shows interest. You know, I don't care. You know, he just has to be kind of, as long as he's wearing like a cross somewhere, like it's something like that. <laughs> if he just knows who Jesus is, that's good. You know, that's close enough. And here's my experience. Guys have, their standards are way too high and women, your standards are way too low. I mean, some, of you, the, some of the guys that, you know, it's just like, as long as they're like three left of homo sapien, you know, it's like, oh, this guy's bipedal and upright. He's good enough. And you go after it. <laughs> I just want to encourage you not to lower your standards when it feels, hey, what's going on here? And just know that the Bible says, do not marry an unbeliever. Don't do it. Here's the thing. God does not bless sin. It's like when my son, when he, if he hits one of his sisters, I don't give him a cookie. I don't bless that. I would not be a good father if I blessed that. He's not going to bless sin. I heard the crazy strategies from women like, well, you know, you know, you know, maybe if I date him and I, and if I sleep with him, maybe I'll become a Christian and then we'll, and then I'll be okay. I heard of this girl once and you know, he, she, you know, she married, she got, she dated an unbeliever and he became a Christian. In fact, he's a pastor now. Yeah. And I know people who buy lottery tickets who win $10 million, but buying lottery tickets is not a good financial strategy. (laughs) Dating an unbeliever is not a good strategy for every I mean, God is a good God. He redeems everything. But do not, do not uh, take the grace of God and the kindness of God and the lovingness of God for granted. Galatians 6, 9 says, God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. For every relationship that you point out that works out, I will show you hundreds that are wrought with pain. Yeah. Don't do it. Don't do it. So one is the Moabite way. The other way is the biblical way. What's the biblical way? Well, men should leave their families, get a job, get a house, get a clue, get a theology, get a church, get their act together, then go find a wife. Women, our daughters, are to be given away in marriage by their families. And a key player in that is the dad who runs interference on the bad guys and gives approval to the good guys. Now, this may seem like, well, you know, it sounds like antiquated and, you know, horrible. Not from the dad's perspective. It's protection. It's safety. I have two daughters that I cherish with all my heart. And the older they get, the more I cry. Don't ask. If you're, if you're thinking about getting married, don't ask me to do your wedding. I don't want to do it because there'll be a father bride's preach and I'll have to go in the back and I'll have to cry. I just don't, I don't want to do that. Don't. I'm sorry. I can't do that anymore. My girls are special to me and I'm trying to do my best to demonstrate the kind of, of man they should look for. And I so, they love their daddy. A couple of weeks ago, Josie, my youngest, she's five. And we're, we're eating dinner and she's a spunky one. And she, she, she's like, she belts out. She's like, I want to marry daddy. Oh, and then, and then, you know, we had that little, and then, jo, and then Rachel, my wife says, well, well, Josie, um, 
daddy's already married to me. And Josie thought about it for a second. She's like, well, you're just going to have to marry somebody else. <laughs> it got a little awkward, let me tell you. So I was like, well, you guys. And I'll never forget. I'll never forget Ella. When she, she's 11 now. She, she was three. We're, we're wrestling around in, our, in, in Rachel Knight's bed. And, and on, the, on the nightstand, there was this picture of, of her and I. Or excuse me, of, of Rachel and I at her wedding day. Wedding dress, tux, you know. And um, she's like, mommy and daddy. I was like, yeah. Um, She's, um, she's my wife and I'm her husband. And she looks at me with this like, almost like this weird, strange look and her lip began to quiver. And she says, oh, I don't have a husband. I'm like, you're three years old. Don't tell me this starts now. I was like, you're going to marry, you'll marry someone when you're older, like really older. And, and she looked at me and she's like, daddy will you tell me who I'm supposed to marry? And I said, yes. <laughs> I will tell you who you're... In fact, let's write that down and have you sign it right now. I will tell you. Now listen, now listen. If you think, if you think that I'm going to let some junior high kid who plays pull my finger with his buddies come in and interrupt what we've got going, there's no way. I'm going to run inter- interference with that. But here's what I'm going to do. When the right guy comes along, I want to help broker that deal. I want to help make that happen. See, a guy who loves you, a guy who respects you, a guy who loves Jesus, a guy who respects me, a guy who respects your mom, and those guys are out there. Um, That's what we're going for. Now, Ruth doesn't have that dad. Maybe you're here and you don't have that dad. For whatever reason, he's not in the picture. I don't know why. He's just not in the picture. Or at least he's not that kind of a spiritual leader. He doesn't have those kinds of ambitions. What does Ruth do? Well, one thing I just want to repeat, what Ruth doesn't do is she doesn't leave the place of God's blessing. She doesn't go back to Moab. Moab. She doesn't go back there. She doesn't settle. She doesn't go the Moabite way. She stays in, in God's blessing. So what, well, chapter 3 is what she does. Now, let me just say a couple things, uh, qualify a couple things. Because we're going to get into kind of some detail. The overarching thing here is you have to see that Ruth is, is now in community with other younger men. Boaz says, hey, before you need a job, before you need a meal, you need community in your life. Here's some young women. And then um, uh, Naomi repeats that toward the end of uh, Ruth too. Says, hey, Boaz gave you those young women, stay near those young women. They're going to help you. You're going to need that. And this whole dialogue that we're seeing is between an older woman and a younger woman. If you're a younger woman seeking to be, to, to, to know what it is to be a wife, to know how it is, what it is to attract a husband, it's common sense, but talk to a woman who has attracted a husband and, and knows what that's like. The example in Titus 2 is younger women with older women, younger men with older men, and and see that. The second thing you need to know, that in Scripture, there is something called, there are descriptive passages, and there are prescriptive passages. The descriptive ones describe what happened. The prescriptive ones prescribe what you should do. An example of a descriptive uh, passage is like Judas. Judas, he betrays the Lord Jesus. He comes under heavy conviction... And he goes and hangs himself. 
If today or any other Sunday that you're here or any other moment of your life, you come under heavy conviction of the Lord, the Bible's not saying go hang yourself. It's not prescribing that you go do that. It's describing what happened. What the overarching thing that the Bible says is that if you confess your sin, he is faithful and, and, and merciful to purify you from all unrighteousness. It says that if you repent, times of refreshing will come. So what's happening, this is descriptive, which means this isn't like the model. It's just what Ruth did. And, um, and there's, there's a bit of a maze, and we'll get through that all. But just, just so you see, you, know, you see the big picture here. This is, but it is, there are some things in here for you uh, to, to hear. Um, if you're in that situation, you're kind of a Ruth, you're new to the church and you're, you're single and you, you've just left your old life and you're kind of clueless, how does this work and you know, how do I find someone? I know how it worked in Moab, I don't know how it works in Bethlehem. Hey, get in community. Find an older woman that you can kind of uh, learn from. You'll need that. But here's some things that she does. This is what Naomi, t- here's the advice. Verse one, then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? That is wholeness, completeness, fullness, that it may be well with you. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? Hey, we, what, didn't you and Boaz used to have a thing? You know, you, know, you got a job. You know, you, we got something to eat. Now we need to find you a husband. What about Boaz? What's going on with Boaz? Let's go after Boaz. How we, here's how we're going to do it. See that he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor, which sounds like a nightclub. Like, like, let's go meet down at the threshing floor. Well, it's not a nightclub. It's the end of barley season, and everybody is super excited because uh, they actually just came through a famine. It's the end of barley season. Everyone's getting their money. Everybody's getting paid, and they throw a big party. And this is a righteous party. God had, uh, God, they went through a tough time, and now God had blessed them, and they are thanking God for their blessing. And I know what your background is, but yes, there was music. Yes, there was dancing. Yes, there was drink. It's, it's what Isaiah talks about in foretasting this great party that is to come in heaven, where we'll have the best of meat and the best of wine. That's what's going, this is a righteous party. Nothing wrong going on here. No one's walking around with a lampshade on their head and like drinking beer out of a paper sack, singing Bon Jovi on a karaoke machine. That's not the scene here. This is a righteous, holy party. So she says to him, excuse me, she says to her, hey, go, go down there, wash, anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. This is what she's saying. He loves your character, but he's only seen you in the field in your functified state. Like, wash yourself, take a shower, take a bath, put on some perfume, put on a dress, put on some makeup, take off the ponytail, go tanning, get yourself all dolled up because he's not thinking of you in a romantic way because he's just seen you that way. He's not, that's why he's not interested. Get dolled up and let's go show Bo we need business. And so... Some of you are like, I'm not chasing a guy. You don't have to chase a guy, but sometimes you need to get in his way because we're just not brilliant. I'm just going to say it. You just, guys are not brilliant. One author said that men chasing women are like dogs chasing fire engines. Should they get one, they're not sure what to do with it. She goes on, but this is very important. Do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. Um, don't interrupt the guy when he's celebrating with his buddies and he's still got an empty stomach. Don't go there and demand the talk. Where are you at in a relationship? Like you, gotta, well, you, don't, you don't call me. Don't go all this emotional train wreck. Just be cool. Just, just, just 
just be cool. Let the, let the guy have his fun. Let him finish his chicken wings. Let him drink his beer. Just let him watch the game. Just let him, just, just don't run in there all needy. Just be cool. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. I'm sure he will. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Now, this advice seems risky. Let me just say, I will never give this advice to my daughters. (laughs) Dating relationships don't include lying down. They include... This seems a little challenging and, and there's all kinds of cultural differences and I'm not going to, I don't have time to get into all of it today, but there are some cool things in here. So just kind of don't see this as prescriptive. Okay. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten it and drunk, he didn't get, he didn't get drunk. He just had, he was had a couple glasses and his heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. So here's what happened. He's not like, oh, I'm too drunk to drive. I better stay here. It was dangerous. Everybody's pockets were fat. It's midnight. And everyone knew that this is where, the, I mean, you could get robbed. So I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay here. Then she comes in softly like a ninja and covers his feet, lays down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman laid his feet. He said, who are you? Good question. <laughs> Joshua nine. Joshua 9, Joshua 9, prostitutes were known to go down to the threshing floor. Why? Well, because I, like I said, everybody's pockets were fat. Some men were not godly. Had, they, got, they did get drunk. They had too much to drink. What is not godly? And prostitutes would come down and make their money. This is probably going through his head when he's like, hey, who are you? I'm Deacon Boaz. You know, something smells like perfume down there. Smells like trouble. Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, this is not some seductive Middle Eastern dirty talk. This is not what's happening here. She's saying, so you remember back in Ruth 12, we talked about this last week, where Boaz prayed for her and she said, may you take refuge under the wing of God. And what she's saying, Ruth is saying, hey, remember that prayer? Why don't you answer that prayer and and allow me to come under your wing? Why don't you be the wing of God. Some translations say, spread your blanket over me. Putting your blanket over a woman was equivalent to putting a ring on her finger. It was a proposal for marriage. It was a public demonstration saying, I want to be with you. I want you to be in my bed. I want to love you. I want to protect you. I want you to be, um, I want you to be under my roof. She's not proposing, but she's proposing that he propose. That's what she's doing. And she's not trying to seduce Boaz, but she is making it very obvious what she wants. She's saying, I want to be in bed with you, not as your girlfriend, not as a booty call, but as your wife. So what do you do, young men? What do you do when a girl makes herself very obvious like that? Take advantage of it? You manipulate the situation? Well, yeah, sure. Why don't you stay with me for the night? See how it goes. Do you string her out knowing that you have the proverbial upper hand? What does Boaz do? He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. He prays for her. Even if this was going in the wrong directions, I mean, Boaz just put on the brakes. I mean, here she is. She's like, I'm going to go meet him at the window before. She gets all dolled up, puts on some perfume, anoints herself, washes up. She goes down and meets him. 
It's at midnight, uncovers his feet, says, I I want to be with you. And Boaz says, is there anything I can pray for you about? (laughs) What a good guy. Just pray. It's time to pray. (laughs) Slows it way down. And then he says, you have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. What we learn is Boaz didn't, pursue, he didn't pursue her, not because he wasn't interested, but because he thinks so highly of her. Um, he thinks she's out of her league. And now you, this isn't obvious to us because, you know, he's a Hebrew, she's a Moabite, he's wealthy, she's poor. Um, you know, he's uh, probably a virgin. She's definitely not a virgin, which is a big deal back then. And so he's just thinking she's not, but he is so, he's able to see through all those kind of cultural things that are really nonsense. He's able to see that she's just, she's a woman of outstanding character. And he puts her way on this pedestal. So he's just, he's just treating her well. You deserve to be, you're a worthy woman. He ascribes worth to her. Everyone else is trashing her. Everyone else doesn't want anything to, he, she lifts him up because not because she was seen as a worthy woman, but because through God's eyes was able to see that she was a worthy woman. She puts, I didn't think you'd be interested in me. The younger guys in Moab can give you children. The younger guys in Moab, they're better. Boaz may have been ugly. I don't know. Maybe more beast and beauty. But because Ruth is of an excellent character herself, she puts at the top of her list a man of character who loves people, who loves God, who's humble, who's a protector, who's a provider. Boaz is humbled that Ruth would ever be interested in him. And ladies, I just got to tell you something about men that you may not know. In fact, I don't even know if men know this about themselves. Um, And that is guys will only fight battles that they know they can win. If they can't think, if they don't think they'll win, they won't fight. It's one of the things I tell in marriage counseling. If I ever catch it, I tell my wife, don't ever, lady, do not, I know this is a contradiction. Don't ever tell your um, spouse, your husband, you never do this. You always do this. What, what, what that does to them is it makes them think, well, if I never do this and I always do this, I can't win. So I'm not trying. Men only fight battles that they can win. Sometimes if you're, a, a guy may not pursue you, not because he's not interested. He just doesn't think you would be interested in him. In fact, sometimes we've got we to like humiliate each other to get, to get each other to ask out, you know. I've got to humiliate the young guys to get them to have the nerve to do it. So I ask a young guy, hey, why don't you ask so-and-so, you know? She loves the Lord. She loves to serve. She's smart. She's pretty. And, oh, she's not really my type. What, you mean awesome is not your type? Is that, <laughs> like, what do you, you wuss? Go ask her out. Sorry if you don't like that word. Um, I didn't think I had a chance with Rachel. You know why I didn't think I had a chance with Rachel? She told me. I don't, you don't have a chance with me. <laughs> That's how I know. See, we're not brilliant, but... Um, we were both very new. When we first met, we were both very new Christian, very, very new Christians. And uh, I had no idea how to handle a brother-sister relationship. And she was very sweet to me, which I thought, oh, yeah, that means she's interested. So I asked her out. She says no. But she kept being sweet to me. 
Here's another thing, ladies. If you're always like, why does he keep asking me out? Why does he keep asking? Because you, you, you're giving him, you're, you're making him think somehow that he can win. If you, if you really want him to stop asking you out, you know, quit being nice to him. Um, but she kept being nice to me. And I just like, well, I asked her out again. And then she got even nicer to me. And so I went large and I went all Boaz with her. And I went, I took her out to a nice dinner. And I said, hey, baby. Um, <laughs> Come here and eat some bread. <laughs> Dip your morsel in this wine. She's like, what are you talking about? I just want to be friends. And I said, well, I have lots of friends. I want, I want you to be more than a friend. And she said, is there anything I can pray for you about? And, uh, <laughs> and so basically she's like, sorry, bro. I'm just not interested. And then I, in my immaturity, I said some mean things. I made her cry. And then I walked away. Now, I went back and apologized. I mean, about a week ago. And so we... Uh, no, <laughs> no I, that night I called her up. I said, hey, I'm so, that, was, that was wrong and rude. And, but what I did in that moment is I emotionally distanced myself. A hundred percent. I, in some ways, I almost like forgot that she... Because I was just like, okay... If I can't win, I'm not fighting. Now, unbeknownst to me, the Holy Spirit of God, like talked some sense into her. Holy Spirit didn't say anything to me. Um, and I was nothing like Boaz, but Rachel was totally Ruth. She has this um, crazy uh, history that God's brought her through. She has strong faith in God, amazing character. And like Ruth, she had to get in my way because I had checked out 100% emotionally. And... She even started, it was, it was the end of 99, 2000 when Rams were making their Super Bowl run. And she started showing up to these um, football parties. And uh, now, to know something about Rachel, we're just like totally different, right? I mean, she's like cool and, and artsy and she likes beauty and color and I'm into efficiency, a balanced budget. And I think wearing gray is making a bold statement. And so we're... <laughs> You know, she's like, you know, radio head. I'm just like top four. So she's just like, we're just different. And so we're on this opposite ends. And then she starts showing up to these, uh, I mean, she, she, I love sports and she hated sports. She starts showing up to these football parties. And I was like, well, it's about time she finally figured it out. And she likes sports now. And uh, that's why she's here. Neither is something wrong about that girl. And so she, no, she, she starts showing up to it, but I didn't get it. I was just thick. I was just like, I just distanced myself. And she even did like this damsel in distress thing. She's like, you know, my, my truck is kind of acting up. Will you, will you follow me home and just kind of make sure that I'm okay? I'm like, okay. I didn't, clueless. <laughs> clueless. So in the Super Bowl, um, she meets me down at the threshing floor and she, um, she, she didn't interrupt me while I was watching the game. She let me eat my chicken wings, let me drink my beer. And then afterwards, she, she invites me. She asked me to go to this hockey game with her. And I was like, uh, something's changed. And uh, I'm like, that's different. And um, a little Brian Regan for you. And so, the, uh, and so I was like, I was, it's like, oh, whoa, okay. Something's, and so we, after the game, we went to the hockey game. And afterwards, we talked. 
Um, she she kind of expressed her ambitions and my ambitions, and we didn't play games, and we just kind of kind of almost like just kind of talked things out that night. And then four months later, we got engaged, and then we got married that later that year. We'll, we'll be married uh, 15 years this week, next week. Um, and that's what kind of Boaz did. She like had to get in his way. He just wasn't. He just wasn't picking up on it. It's okay to get. I mean, get in his community group. You know, sit in sit in the row in front of him, just a little bit off center, so he see. You know, don't distract him, but just like sit where he could notice you. Get in his way. It's, that's fine. And that's what what Ruth does with Boaz, and Boaz just responds so honorably. He responds so honorably. He says, now, my daughter, do not fear for all that you, for I will do for you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. It's like, I'm not going to play games with you. I'm not going to string you out. You know, in, he is a worthy man. You know, that's what we learned in Ruth 2.1. He is a worthy man. This verse right here is saying, hey, everybody knows that you're a worthy woman. This is what Paul talks about when he says, you know, to be equally yoked, worthy woman, worthy man, coming together. And then he says, and now it is true that I am a redeemer. A redeemer was someone of the family um, who in some cases had the obligation to, uh, to, to redeem, to, to, to win the land back because people go into debt. There was no credit cards or anything like that. You just lost your land. And so it, it was the oblig- it was sometimes the obligation for someone of the family to come and buy back that land. In fact, if you were a brother... If you were a brother, if, so um, if your brother's wife died, it was your obligation to marry her so that she could have children. Well, Boaz wasn't a, a, a brother. Boaz was actually just a very distant relative. In fact, he says, there's someone else here uh, who's even nearer than I am. But he says, remain tonight and in the morning, if he, re- if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. Basically saying, hey, look, you know, I'm mainly interested in seeing that that you are taken care of, loved, protected, and that you have a happy life. That's all he cares about. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. You see, he, did, he didn't redeem her, not because he was obligated to, even though no one else would. Even those closer to her than him said, no, no thanks, no thanks, no thanks. It wasn't, he didn't just fulfill the law. He went well beyond the law into grace. And he said, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to love you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bless you. He's marrying her because he loves her. And in this, Boaz is like Jesus and Ruth is like the church. Like Ruth, we were destitute. Like Ruth, we had lost everything. And Jesus came to redeem us, not because he was obligated to, but because he loves us. And like Boaz, he just didn't provide for our needs, not even more for their needs. He didn't just give us all that we need. But his desire is to win back all that we lost from our own sin and from the sin that was committed to us. He wants to redeem your past. He wants to redeem your present. He wants to redeem your future. If you're here today and maybe you're like Ruth and like nobody's interested in me and, and uh, I'm, I'm spiritually destitute, I'm emotionally destitute, I'm physically destitute. You, you can have confidence in coming to Jesus. You see, Ruth, one of the big things here is Ruth was t- making a big risk in going to Boaz. She was younger. He was older. She was an employee. He was an employer. She was a Moabite. He was a Hebrew. 
She was not a virgin. He was a virgin. This was a big risk. But she saw his character and she approached him and she says, will you redeem me? And he said, yes, I will. If you're here today and you are destitute, if you come, you're like, will he redeem me? Will he have? If you come to him and, and you say, Jesus, will you redeem me? He goes, yes, I will. I will love you. I will provide for your needs. I will protect you. I will fight for you. I will redeem your past and I will redeem your future. Well, how do you know that? Well, he's already, he's in eternity past. He went to the cross. Something outside of you. He, he did something outside of you 2,000 years ago, dying on the cross. He that knew no sin became your sin. He paid your ransom price so that you could come into the family. You were, you were not once apart. Now you are apart. So therefore, as a Hebrews 4 says, you can come boldly to the throne of grace. We see who Boaz is, and you're like, man, if I was ever, maybe as we're telling stories, if I was ever in trouble, I would go to Boaz. If I ever needed something to eat, I would go to Boaz. If I ever needed someone to protect me, I would go to Boaz. You just know that Boaz is just a, a dim picture of the greatness and the goodness and the passion and the pursuit of Jesus, who left not just, who didn't just give up his wealth, but he gave up his very life for you and me so we can come boldly. If you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're in a low place, you're in a destined place, you have a redeemer in Jesus and you can come boldly to him today. He will accept you. He will love you. He will redeem you. He's the only one who will redeem you and can redeem you.